Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The plan that we need to ensure we are turbocharging is a plan that puts businesses at the heart of creating that economic growth. Just to be crystal clear on this, do you think that gay sex is a sin? I believe that people's marriage, uh, if they are gay uh, and they are married, that their marriage is no less, uh, there's no more inferior or less, uh, is worth, worth less than my marriage. So you said you'll adapt if the UK government says no, but you can't tell me what you'll adapt to. You I'm, not, I'm not going to set that out at this stage. Do you, do you have a plan? I have an idea, but I'm not going to set that out at this stage. Why not? because I think that it's important that we focus on the plan that I've set out. Hello and welcome to Hollywood Sources. Thanks for finding us. We're back for episode two. I hope you've already pressed follow or subscribe, depending on where you're listening. Follow or subscribe to the podcast. We are here throughout the campaign to be the next First Minister of Scotland and beyond, uh, analysing politics in Scotland today with those who have actually lived it, with those who have been in those corridors at Holyrood giving advice. We've got Jeff Aberdeen with us, former Chief of Staff to the First Minister of Scotland. Hello, Jeff. Good morning. Hello, hello. Uh, <laughs> whatever time Feels you're listening. Like <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wherever you are, whatever your time you're listening, you're very welcome. And Andy McKeever's here, former Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Hello, I'll go afternoon, shall I? That'll do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I work long days. <laughs> it is great. It's great to have you both with us. Uh, thank you for being here. Yes, thank you for finding us. We are fairly new. We started last week, um, but it is lovely to have you along with us. Uh, we've got lots already, lots to talk about as part of the Scottish leadership uh, campaign for the SNP, and indeed to be the next First Minister of Scotland as well. Uh, today, we're going to tick off a few things. Actually, we're going to talk about the Windsor framework. We're going to talk about teacher strikes, which are underway in Scotland today and tomorrow. And also an interesting consideration as to where the Green Party stand in all of this as well. So all of that to come. 
Follow, subscribe. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us online. And you can email anytime as well. The email inbox is always open. And the address is hello at hollywoodsources.com. Uh, special mention today to Elaine Fell, who was the first person ever to email the podcast and says the following. Pay attention, Andy. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Elaine says... Well done, guys. Loved the first episode. Great insight from lots of perspectives. It's a fascinating time in Scottish politics and much food for thought. Elaine goes on. I'm Andy's old, in inverted commas, modern studies teacher from Curry High School. And I teach at Dunbar Grammar School, so feeling very proud to see someone who I remember aged 16 and loved his politics then too, says Elaine. Yes, Elaine, very how good. Much and did, Elaine, how much Elaine did you pay, Elaine? How much did you pay, Elaine, for that, Andy? Better known to me as Miss Cunningham. Of course. 30 years ago. Uh, but yes, Elaine felt excellent. Uh, head of modern study, I think, down at Dunbar. And uh, I'm actually going to go and speak to her class at some point in the next few weeks good chat through all this as well so yeah you need to give something back from elaine well yes. indeed that is very lovely thank you elaine um and make sure you rinse him for all he's worth when he comes to speak to you in a couple of weeks <laughs> as well uh, and hello to david as well david from lincolnshire who's emailed hi callum that made a change from westminster a very enlightening view from north of the border which will help me understand the issues as time goes on uh, I think I think the podcast has a healthy and busy couple of years ahead, uh, says David. I think that's probably true. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for your emails. Email anytime if you want to agree or disagree with what we're saying. If you want to add your take and your experiences, we would love to hear from you. Always the email address is hello at hollywoodsources.com. These are the guys who have been there, done that, and can now reflect on the situation as things stand. Right, both. Let's crack on then. So the big news this week has been the Northern Ireland Brexit deal. Uh, the so-called Windsor framework that Rishi Sunak and the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, have announced, that they have agreed, that they have worked hard at, uh, and that they are particularly proud of, it would seem. I suppose some of the top lines from this, just by way of getting us into this, uh, goods from Britain that are heading for Northern Ireland will now travel through a green lane. There will be a separate red lane for any goods that are at risk of moving on to the EU. There are now no new requirements on moving things like pets from Northern Ireland to Britain. Um, that's a big one. Parcels will not be subject to full custom declarations. Medicines for use in Northern Ireland will be approved by the UK regulator. The European Medicines Agency will not have any role. There's this thing as well called the Stormont Break. So under the Northern Ireland Protocol, some EU law applies in Northern Ireland, but politicians have had no formal way to influence the rules. So this new agreement means the EU rules applied in Northern Ireland drops to less than 3%. And the Stormont break allows the Northern Ireland Assembly to raise an objection to a new goods rule. That, those are some of the bare bones of the Windsor framework. There's a lot more detail in there. If you've got the time, you can read the thousands upon thousands of words uh, that have been written about it. Um, I just wonder, Andy, what we make of this in the context of the campaign and how it could shape, uh, I suppose, the direction towards an independent Scotland as the candidates might see it. Well, um, I mean, I think it's very interesting from the point of view of what it means for Scotland. I would always put a pretty healthy caveat on top of anything that happens in Northern Ireland because the backdrop of the peace process and the requirement to um, ensure that there is no further conflict of that sort on 
in Northern Ireland. And, you know, we saw just last week with the uh, the shooting of the police officer that it's never far away, right? And and, and I think that um, in many in many cases, both by the EU and by the UK, significant concessions are made to Northern Ireland uh, and significantly different arrangements are made for Northern Ireland that would probably not be made in any other circumstance because of the history of conflict and bloodshed in Northern Ireland. And so I think there's always a caveat in being able to sort of lift and drop policy uh, and arrangements from there to anywhere else. I think back to the fact that for quite a few years now, for instance, it's a much smaller um, issue in the grand scheme of things, but corporation tax is devolved to Northern Ireland. And the reason it was devolved to Northern Ireland years ago is because it was too difficult for Northern Ireland to compete with the Republic on corporation tax, because the Republic had much lower corporation tax than the UK. So it was devolved. Um, any suggestion there's ever been of devolving corporation tax to Scotland as part of previous iterations of the Scotland Act has always been rejected out, you know, wholesale. Not happening. Not going to do it. Um, and it's for reasons of the uh, the internal market and competition and all that sort of thing. So um, there, there is the history of Northern Ireland just being different in terms of the rules that are applied. All of that being said, a longer caveat than I anticipated it would be when I said a brief caveat. <laughs> um, uh, there are things of interest here. And the principal thing of interest, I think that, I mean, you can look into the detail and, 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 and tear into it and say, you know, that imagine if this was applied here and that was applied there. I think the main thing of interest is that what it shows is that pretty much anything in terms of arrangements can be achieved when there's political will to achieve it. And the UK is uh, a, an incredibly asymmetrical mashing together of uh, regulations and legislation and legislatures. Um, and it does what it does show us is that pretty much anything is possible if the will is there. The difference, I think, as I say, is that the will is there at UK government level when it comes to ensuring the security and safety of Northern Ireland. I'm much less convinced that the will is there at UK government level to facilitate something that Scottish nationalists might want to happen. Um, and the final point I would make is that that's, I suppose, from a unionist perspective. I also wonder about this from a nationalist perspective. There is the argument that says, oh, you know, we should look at this because uh, there might be a lot in here that's useful for us and we could try and, you know, create new rules here and there. But I would say there's a large proportion of Scottish nationalists who would say we're not interested in any of that. Actually, we don't want to engage in that sort of incrementalism. We don't want to engage in a tinkering of what the UK looks like. We want independence and we want inside the EU. And we're not really interested in talking about anything less. Mm -hmm. Jeff, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> first things first. I mean, the you know, I think Rishi Sunak deserves a lot of credit uh, for getting this deal uh, I, I, somewhat over the line. I still think it's uh, subject to, to further ratification potentially from the uh, parties in, in Northern Ireland, um, uh, you know, has it done enough to, to really um, improve his chances at the next election? I think it's a, a major stumbling block potentially overcome. And I think he's done Boris Johnson, his predecessor, up like a kipper, in all honesty, which is, I'm sure, a source of satisfaction to Rishi Sunak and his followers. In terms of the, the union, um, I, I think the key 
you know, defining factor for Rishi Sunak or any Tory Prime Minister when they come into an election period, which we expect in about 18 months or so, is, is whether um, the economy is performing well. And so whilst he has overcome this obstacle, I think the big test will wait to see can he improve the UK's growth rates, um, which have been languishing uh, largely um, over the last couple of years. In terms of the Scottish dimension, um, I accept everything Andy said, and there is a health warning when you consider um, Northern Ireland and the specific issues that it's had to face in recent times. But nonetheless, I was quite struck by my, an article by my mentor and former colleague Kevin Pringle, Pringle in the uh, Courier today when he kind of said, pointed out that when the political will is there, there is opportunity. Now, um, clearly we've been told um, a lot by those who favour the union, you, you can't have um, access to the uh, British internal market when uh, you would be seeking to be a member of the EU. What this does do is demonstrate that when, as I say, there's the political will, there are options available. And I, I read from what Rishi Sunak said, and uh, this will deliver a smooth flow of trade within the United Kingdom for Northern Ireland and enables Northern Irish businesses in continuing access to the UK, uh, to the EU market. So that principle has been established, it's a precedent. But for the reasons that Andy's outlined, it has to be navigated very carefully. Nonetheless, I, I would imagine there's a few strategists on the national slides looking at this and saying, well, how can we develop our thoughts in this particular regard? It's interesting, isn't it? Because th there are any number of considerations, as you've suggested, there's a kind of Northern Ireland being an ex just an exceptional circumstance. There's a kind of negotiating tactic in all of this as well as to what do you give away and who do, to whom do you give it? Uh, because I suppose in the kind of build-up to any independent drive, that's, that's a big thing for a Westminster government. Just on the election, let's come back to some of the other thoughts in a sec, but on the electoral uh, side of things, um, Jeff, your thoughts on, I suppose, what this might do for the Labour Party. I saw one take yesterday, which was quite interesting, that uh, at the next general election, hardly anyone would vote on the issue of Northern Ireland and its future in the UK and out of the EU. That wasn't going to play that big. And so actually it removes Brexit as an election issue because it's all kind of resolved. And is that an opening for Labour? Does that boost Labour's chances because Brexit is arguably going to be in the past to some extent? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to break any confidences. I was, um, I guess, at an event with a, a, a former senior Labour politician uh, recently, and he indicated that if Brexit, um, leaving aside the Northern Ireland issue just for now, but if Brexit was still deemed and perceived to be an economic disaster, as he put it, would Keir Starmer be tempted, given the substantial poll lead he has over his opponents just now, tempted to soften his approach on the EU? Now, I think there's a lot, a lot of water to go under the bridge before we get to that position. But you do wonder um, if that is something that they would consider doing. And, and of course, what's, what's stopping them from doing that is the previous red wall seats in the northern north of England, which became blue seats uh, under uh, Boris Johnson. That's what he's vying for. And that's the political calculation. Fascinating to see how it unfolds. But I think the answer to your question depends on how Brexit, how badly potentially Brexit is viewed in terms of damaging the economy, or is it in a better situation, in which case you probably don't want to front it up as an election issue. Mm. And Andy, what are we what are we not talking about by way of assumptions of 
in theory, an independent Scotland's membership or otherwise of the European Union. Is that is that actually a slight hurdle in, in all of this? I'm just trying to understand, for example, how the candidates can position themselves around this. Do they do they, the, the, the uh, SNP candidates? I mean, do they accept that actually Scotland is going to be out with the EU if they start banging the drum for something similar to the Win- Windsor framework that we've heard about this week? Well, see, I think that question and the issue that Jeff has just addressed on Keir Starmer are why I am not sure that for the purposes of the Scottish debate in relation to the EU and indeed in relation to the UK, I'm not sure the Windsor framework will live long in the memory when it comes to all of that. Because, I mean, on the Keir Starmer one, I think it's it's a really interesting debate in the Labour Party, but I'm not sure it is much of a debate, to be honest with you. I think that Political parties have got a history of not doing uh, or of doing the thing that their opponent wants them to do. And if you're the Tory party, what you really, really, really want Keir Starmer to do is to roll back on Bre- on his Brexit position uh, and, to, uh, and to soften the Brexit position before mm. the election. Because that is ex- that's the only way that you're going to have any sort of chance in the Red Wall to hold on to the... I mean, you know, Starmer is now ahead of Sunak in the Red Wall, persistently ahead of him in the Red Wall... Um, and the only way that's going to be reversed is if Starmer softens his position in the EU. I can absolutely see a situation after the election when it looks like Keir Starmer has a 10-year runway of being Prime Minister, where he will soften his EU approach and maybe even start looking at a kind of EFTA type of uh, EEA type of situation. I could see that happening because I think that's probably what, where he wants to go, but I don't see him doing it before the election. And that's where I suppose it leads us into Scotland as well. I think that... Um, I think a lot of people overplay the whole Brexit issue when it comes to Scottish politics, because I think what we've seen since the Brexit referendum in 2016 is that the SNP expected that was the moment where the tables turned and where independence and the yes vote took a substantial and sustained lead, and it hasn't happened. And I think the reason it hasn't happened is you always get a knee-jerk reaction to that sort of thing. So in the knee-jerk you know, just straight after the Brexit referendum and the Leave vote, yes, polling went to, I think, 55-odd percent. And then it just fell back to its sort of trend status. And I think the reason for that is that in Scotland, the vast majority of people are more emotionally attached or detached to the local union, i.e. the UK question, than they are to the European question. So there are quite a number of people who are pro-UK and who are therefore no voters, but who are also Remainers. Huge contingent of them. But if you question them on what's more important, the UK is more important to almost all of them. So they would rather stay in the UK, even if it means they will not get back into the EU, because that's more important to them. And similarly, there's a not insignificant but I suppose, Andy, number. sorry to interrupt, but, that, yeah. but I suppose just that is why, though, that the Windsor agreement, with all the caveats that you've rightly applied, is so interesting, though, isn't it? Because it has that best of both worlds, for, for want of a better uh, phrase. But maybe maybe because what... of that, though, maybe it's more interesting for unionists than it is for nationalists in that way. Maybe yeah. it's a mechanism for Good unionists point. to offer a better, more modern version of the union. Rather than for nationalists to extract something else, maybe actually it's for Keir Starmer to look at and say, well, actually, we've done this in Northern Ireland. We could easily offer this to Scotland and actually make it more attractive. So maybe it's a unionist tool 
rather than a nationalist tool. Yeah, and I do think, right, just, just added to that, Andy, I mean, what I was saying about how Brexit is perceived is so important, not, not, not just in Scotland, but for the entire uh, UK and the future kind of political narrative. Um, if there is a, a resuscitation of the UK economy uh, before the, the, the next general election, it's much less likely to be such a, a, a hot issue. But if the economy deteriorates and our European neighbours and other countries in the G7 are performing comparably better, you can see the situation, I think, where it becomes a much stronger line of argument. And I think it's fascinating to see, one, in Scotland, how the SNP would react to that, and secondly, how would Labour, both in Scotland and across the UK, react to that? Do you know what's interesting as well, Callum, is that how big a deal putting the the um the Windsor agreement to one side mm. how big an issue is the eu going to be in the snp leadership campaign because yeah. mm. I, I have felt for a while now that the sort of snp establishment as i said i think they feel that the whole brexit and eu question is a bigger deal than it is i think people who are massively motivated on the question of the eu who are yes voters and remain voters I think it's those people, a proportion of those people who are who have the most motivation. And frankly, they've already made up their minds. Nobody, they're not getting their minds changed anyway. Mm -hmm. So I do wonder whether, by going on about the EU so much, is the SNP in danger to a degree of talking to itself? Because there are much, much bigger issues out there, which I think people are more bothered about. That's why it became interesting, you know, Ash Reagan started talking about the EU over the weekend uh, with her policy of... Um, of going into the European Free Trade Association. And it is, I mean, it's an interesting, it's a very, very interesting policy to talk about, not, not least because I think going into the EU would be very problematic for an independent Scotland. But I do wonder how much it's an internal issue as opposed to an external issue. I wonder if it comes down to, again, a slight Northern Ireland exceptionalism here, where there has been a very definitive uh, and very well-publicised difficulty with Brexit for Northern Ireland by virtue of it being an unresolved issue since the referendum. Uh, we've had several iterations of attempt at plans. We had Boris Johnson's Northern Ireland Protocol, which had been, you know, burned into oblivion. And so I suppose there's a far more kind of tangible dispute to be had between Northern Ireland and Brexit. Whereas with Scotland and Brexit, unless you're a sort of business owner who's struggling to move fish around, for example, perhaps it feels like a bit more distant to your everyday sort of person. Um, I suppose with that in mind, I did clock a, a poll from uh, admittedly August last year, 2022. Uh, it was for the Times by panel base, found that if Brexit, that if the referendum was held again tomorrow at the time, 72% of voters in Scotland would support Remain, which is up from 62% in 2016. 69% said they would rejoin the EU, and that was up from 61% in January. So that was kind of last summer. Um, and I just wonder if yeah, how you balance that, Jeff. If you're, if you're an SNP leadership candidate right now, one of the three, where do you place the EU in a priority, in a priority of this campaign? Is it, should it be up there, or should you just kind of let sleeping dogs lie to an extent? Yeah, I mean, listen... 62% voted, you know, when, when the votes mattered, 62% voted to remain in the, uh, of Scots to, voted to remain in the EU, uh, uh, the, uh, the EU um, at the Brexit referendum. That's a pretty strong cabal of voters. Uh, the difficulty is that in terms of the list of priority in which the voters put that particular issue, 
might not match that sentiment in that one-off referendum that we had. And, and that's what we're seeing, I think, effectively play out in the, in the leadership campaign. Apart from Ash Reagan's kind of introducing the EFTA uh, uh, arrangement, I don't see the, the next four weeks being determined or dis uh, by EU or anything relating to EU membership being high up the political agenda. Far more likely to see core issues at the very top of the agenda. Health, education, we've seen Hamza Youssef with his gambit on one and two year olds and universal um, support for them this morning. That's where this debate's going to be won and lost, I think, and discussed um, as opposed to EU membership. But one thing to bear in mind, and I'm going to repeat myself, because I did sense um, a few weeks ago, before First Minister had resigned and before Sunak had managed to uh, come up with the free, uh, Windsor framework, there was that sense of real scunner factor with Brexit. Um, and we're seeing the economic stats come out, the growth stats, the productivity stats. We're starting to equate some of what's happening with access to, to vegetables and fruit uh, with what's happening in, in, in Brexit. So I do think it's not, I think it's far too lazy, put it that way, to suggest this might not become a, a bigger issue. I think we have to understand where we sit as an economy uh, in the next uh, period before we determine how big of an issue it's coming. Right now, in a leadership contest in Scotland to become party leader and first minister, I don't suspect it'll be top of the agenda. Mm. Really interesting. Really interesting thoughts. Uh, let us know what you think as well. Of course, on this, does the does the Windsor framework, what does, does it do anything for you? Or is it kind of in the rearview mirror to some extent? Email us, hello at hollywoodsources.com. And since you're listening, you might as well press follow. You might as well press subscribe. Stay with us over the next few weeks as the leadership campaign unfolds and indeed beyond uh, as we assess politics for you today. With all of that in mind, actually, let's turn then to what, what does await the next First Minister of Scotland. Um, we want to just spend a few minutes just considering what is often referred to as the in-tray. What is, what is on the priority list? What is important? And we ask this in the context of teacher strikes uh, today. Another two days of strike action across Scotland. Uh, their pay dispute is continuing. Uh, almost every state primary and secondary school in the country to be closed by this 48-hour strike. Uh, all of this combined means that uh, many pupils will have lost at least five days of schooling because of industrial action. Uh, it began back in November. Uh, teachers' unions want a 10% pay increase. The Scottish Government says their demands are unaffordable. That's just one element to this. The other thing that I want to mention, stats today, the number of patients on hospital waiting list has risen again to almost 625,000. Therefore, the three months to the end of December, these latest figures. It's the, uh, the waiting list number is the highest since statistics were recorded in their current form about a decade ago. Uh, Andy, they're inheriting a bit of a nightmare on several fronts. Uh, yes, they are. I mean, we talked briefly last week about the drivers behind, or any potential drivers behind Nicola Sturgeon's decision, and we talked, to, you know, we talked how, about how the de facto referendum was probably the key amongst them. But um, you know, in, straight into the entry, as soon as the first minister comes in, is a decision as to whether or not to uh, pursue uh, court action on the UK government's decision to uh, uh, Section Thirty-Five, the Gender Recognition Act. That's that's going to be an enormous story, whatever the new first minister decides to do. Um, the other two fairly big acute issues which were hitting Nicola Sturgeon at that point were the deposit return scheme. Um, which is currently subject to quite a lot of debate in 
the uh, leadership election, also in Scottish politics in general, and also now in UK politics, where the UK government has also become involved in that bottle return scheme, which is not due to be in England until 2025. Um, and there are therefore question marks by the UK government as to whether it should be in Scotland before then. So there's that. There's an alcohol advertising consultation, which I think in normal times would have been much less controversial. But I think because Nicola Surgeon was seen as being slightly weak at that point over the last six weeks or so, I think some people smelled an element of blood uh, and thought they would take an opportunity to start to look a little bit more in depth at that. There's been a lot of discussion about the impact it might have on small brewers and small distillers, local events, the sort of thing that small brewers and distillers might sponsor that they might not be allowed to, that sort of thing as well. They're the kind of acute issues. Um, there's a big issue looming over the National Care Service, which really, if you speak privately, pretty much nobody thinks can actually happen. Pretty much nobody thinks can be afforded. Pretty much nobody thinks can be delivered. So there's going to have to be some sort of statement on that. Um, and as you mentioned, there's the the ongoing strikes. And you know, I think the teacher strike is. I've always found it a really interesting political issue because the SNP for 15, 16, 17 years have worked incredibly hard to attract the sort of people that would have previously voted for the Labour Party teachers, doctors, nurses, that, you know, that, that type of public service profession was a Labour voting profession and has become a very large number of an SNP voting profession. And they're really, really reticent to be seen to criticise them because they're SNP voters and they're yes voters and they don't want to lose them. But privately, you know that the Scottish government is furious with the EIS and thinks that the behaviour of the EIS, which for listeners outside Scotland is the main teaching union in Scotland, um, which caused a lot of problems during COVID in terms of reopening schools and which has acted really in a fairly belligerent way um, in, in not even considering the pay offer, which was 6% uh, for year one and 5.5% for year two. Um, really haven't even considered that, whereas the other teaching union have accepted it. Um, there's a real fury at government level about their behaviour, but they can't really let that come much above the surface because they don't want to be seen to be criticising teachers. So there's all these layers of issues. And because Scottish politics is Scottish politics and because constitutional politics is constitutional politics, you have to consider the impact on your party vote and on your yes-no vote of pretty much any of the steps that you take. And, and I guess the problem for the SNP government and for the incoming First Minister now is there has never been a, an entry with the volume and level of difficulty that there is going to be for the new First Minister in four weeks. It simply hasn't existed throughout the entire period of SNP government so far. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to... I mean, we were in danger, weren't we, last week of agreeing a lot, Andy, and, and so... Uh, Whilst I think you have so succinctly outlined all the challenges uh, that the, the next First Minister will face, let's try and take a different approach and say how they could be opportunities as well. Mm. Because if you can come in and, and take some of the issues that you raise, let's take DRS, for example, and I think um, it's almost certain now whoever wins, it's going to be amended. If it's Kate or Ash, I think it would certainly be almost paused um, perhaps even indefinitely, but at least 
uh, reviewed subsequently. There's there's merit in doing that. I'm doing something differently. I've recognised the issue. Business is concerned. Similar with the alcohol sponsorship, which I actually think is a bigger issue than you you, you might think, uh, Andy. You know, we're talking about a world class um, sector, particularly our whiskey sector, and we seem to have united the, the that sector um, against this. Um, consultation and so I think there'll be strength in perhaps saying no 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 we're going to calm this one down we're going to take some of this thing out of it we're not meaning that it's just been overwritten and 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 when you get to that stage of doing that you can establish yourself quite quickly you know and saying look I'm doing things fresh I'm on the side of some of our world-class businesses and indeed uh, the small business community as well but nonetheless nonetheless you are we're facing with and we discussed it last week, all of these issues in play right now, all the while you're going to have an individual who has, as we discussed again, uh, low voter recognition in comparison to uh, uh, the predecessor, Nicola Sturgeon. And so it's a huge, hugely challenging uh, period. But let's try and look at the positives and see if there is opportunities to distance yourself and establish yourself and your own uh, personal ambitions. The final thing I'll say is that you mentioned an interesting point on the National uh, Care Service, Andy. If I were Kate Forbes particularly, I would wonder about uh, saying, look, we'll listen to the unions on this and audit Scotland. It's, uh, there's a cute way of doing that as well, obviously, because she's charged with not being so inside with the left. But by saying you're listening to the unions, that would be quite a nice uh, 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 way to do it. And then say, look, I think we're going to cancel this and the council, or postpone it at least, and reallocate the funds to the front line of the NHS. And thus, you're saying to your principal opponent, who's also health secretary, what you do for the health service, and maybe put thumbs on the spot. That might be a little bit of a tactic to look out for in the in the leadership campaign. Jeff, is there a political consideration here too, in that whoever wins, how do they appoint a cabinet uh, based on the fact that there are so many issues outstanding. We mentioned the, the, the waiting list. I mean, that's Hamza Yusuf's brief and has been for a little while. Shirley Ann Somerville's the Education Secretary. If Assuming the strikes are not resolved by the time a new leader is appointed or elected, do you reappoint these same people who have had these issues bubbling for some time and haven't fixed them? Well, my, my instinct tells me I think you have to have a freshening up mm. um, regardless. I mean, it's a while since Nicola Sturgeon had a, a reshuffle of her own cabinet. And so I think it would benefit from trying to establish yourself as a new first minister. You'd want to freshen things up and, uh, and appoint new faces to new roles. Um, that said, you know, Kate Forbes is going to have some difficulty based on all of those uh, parliamentarians and MSPs who have uh, endorsed Hamza. Um, she might have some difficulty trying to encourage people into certain positions, perhaps. But but I certainly think definitely with Kate, you're going to get fresh faces, not just because of that issue, because I think she said she wants, a, I think she said, quote, um, it needs freshening up. So that tells me that she'd certainly freshen things up. I think Ashwood as well, from what I can gather. Yeah. Hamza, more likely to stay, uh, as he's self uh, uh, described himself as the uh, continuity candidate. I think you'd have some, some familiar faces there, but maybe in different positions. But I think whoever it is, you need to have a, a, a kind of a, a new look about things to say, look, this is how we're going to do it, and this is the team, the new team that's going to do it. Do you know what's? And I'm just reflecting and just thinking when Jeff was speaking there, and it's, it, this, you know, this could be quite an interesting aspect to the campaign because we had a situation um, where what eight days ago. 
uh, Kate Forbes launched her campaign. There was the furore. And really, we were talking at that point, you know, sort of Tuesday, Wednesday last week, all the speculation was, is she even going to be in the race, right? Is she gone? Is she out of it in the next two days? By the time we recorded the podcast on Friday, uh, our first podcast, we knew who the nominees were. So we knew that Kate Forbes was in. And we'd also started to have a little bit of polling evidence, not, not good enough polling evidence, but a little bit of polling evidence that, hold on, maybe the MSPs are different from the party membership and, and different from the SNP voters and so on. And maybe maybe Kate Forbes is not just as out of it as we as we thought. And, you know, now we're getting to the point where people are starting to, to question that even more. And just thinking about what Jeff is saying there, actually, um, if you're the continuity candidate, if you're Hamza Yousaf as a continuity candidate, which he undoubtedly is, you know, the candidate who is tacitly at least endorsed by... Nicholas Sturgeon and John Swinney, it makes it an awful lot more difficult for you to say exactly the things that Jeff was saying there. How do you turn around yeah. and say, yeah, I realise that, you know, that has, that's been a disaster. How can he turn around the National Care Service and say, yeah, it's a big mistake. You know, we're going to have to change all that. He can't. He's health secretary. Um, and he's so close to a lot of the, you know, on GRR, because he is now effectively the candidate of the Green Party as well, He's the only candidate who's going to keep the coalition together with the Greens. How can he do much on GRR other than what's already been agreed by the Nicholas Sturgeon government? Ditto on DRS, where the responsible minister is a Green minister. You know, it is actually an awful lot easier for Kate Forbes and Ash Regan to take a different view on all of this and to say, well, actually, I simply don't agree with the direction of travel on this. I'm going to change all of this. Um, it's much easier for them because they're now seen as being the outsiders. So they already have effectively a free run at doing that. Much, much more difficult for Hamza Yousaf to be that candidate who gets to say, yeah, I'm going to change all the things that aren't working. Really interesting. Uh, GRR, the DRS, WTF. WTF indeed. (laughs) Goodness me. Uh, And you actually, you mentioned a really interesting thought there as as to the role of the Green Party. Um, And perhaps we should just uh, highlight where where they're at uh, and the influence or otherwise that they might have. Jeff, what's your assessment of, of the Green Party, their status, their influence, their power, frankly, at this point? Yeah, they've been kind of pumping their chest a little bit to say, indicate really, um, if you're reading between the lines, that effectively Hamza would be the only one they'd be willing to to work with. Um, I suppose I'd be interested in Andy's thoughts on this, but I kind of another thought I had about this: the Green Party, since they entered government, have had consistently high polling on the the list vote, the one that they really go after, not mm. the constituency vote, Holyrood, but the list vote. Um, and whilst they they may be kind of bumping their chest and saying, we won't work with anyone other than Hamza. I'm not saying that's what they're directly saying, but sure. it's certainly implied. They have to think carefully about that because I think they have had much more relevance, sustained uh, good positions in the polls, relatively speaking, for the Green Party. And will they just simply want to throw that all away if their preferred candidate doesn't win? So I do think there's a, a bigger discussion they need to have within themselves about how they would approach um, whether it's Kate Forbes or Ash Reagan. Now, the other side of the equation is, does, does Kate Forbes or Ash Reagan want to be in coalition with the Greens? However, 
informally it is. Uh, so these things, I certainly think this type of issue will be a, a hot topic at the hustings and debates to come, and I'm going to listen in intently. Yeah, definitely. Andy, other than numerically, what are the upsides of of an informal coalition with the Greens as far as, you know, Kate Forbes or Ash Regan might be concerned? Um, I, I think it's... I don't think it's too um, churlish to say that and as if we, other than numbers, I'm not sure Kate Forbes or Ash Reagan will really see any upside in terms of the coalition with the Greens, to be honest with you. Um, if we compare this parliament to the last parliament, the SNP operated a minority government between 2016 and 2021 with 63 seats. So they were two seats short of a majority. Um, they had some hairy moments towards the end of that parliament, which is largely why they rushed into this cooperation agreement, but they had some hairy moments at the end of the last parliament, but they passed every budget. They didn't lose any ministers. You know, everything got done. Um, and there was a healthy dose of the Greens saying, well, we're going to make sure that the, this doesn't fall apart because we're all in it together when it comes to the independence cause. Um, the, they then got an extra seat at the 2021 election, so they were only one seat short of an overall majority. Um, and yet they gave the Greens two ministries and two special advisers. Now, I mean, it was a pretty high price to pay for the sake of one vote, but I think they felt um, sufficiently, uh, I suppose, cornered at the time. They had been losing votes in Parliament. Uh, they felt vulnerable, and they felt they just needed the safety in numbers. Um, I am not convinced it makes an enormous difference to the independence drive, to be honest with you, I don't think any voter has gone from being a sort of soft unionist to saying, oh, well, now that they're in coalition with each other, I'm definitely going to vote yes. I mean, I just don't really think that's particularly um, a driver. Um, and I, I think that the impact of the Greens in government has been more significant. And you can see this as a positive or a negative, and you will see it as a positive or a negative, depending on which side of the fence you come from. But I think it is far more significant than we had ever anticipated it might be. Ash Regan talked at the weekend there. She used the phrase, the tail wagging the dog, uh, the green tail wagging the yellow dog. You know, and a lot, a lot of people you speak to will think it's just a green dog uh, rather than simply the green tail wagging the yellow dog. Um, and there's no doubt that there has been significant policy capture in areas like housing in particular, the private rented sector, uh, has had, the face of the private rented sector has been completely changed um, uh, as a result of the Greens being in government. The face of infrastructure investment, we've talked a lot in the last week about the A9 and the A96. Infrastructure investment is now... Um, it's probably not fair to say it's off the table, but I think it's at the edge of the table um, <laughs> with the Greens being in government. Um, I mean, that's a big issue. Uh, oil and gas has changed very significantly, even though it was explicitly not part of the cooperation agreement, it's difficult to see statements of the type we've seen from the Scottish government in that area if it hadn't been for the Green influence. And of course, GRR has been heavily influenced by the Greens as well. So um, I think that it is it's difficult to see why Kate Forbes and Ash Regan would be particularly... And it, I think it will be mutual. Because at the end of the day, if they're not backing gender recognition reform, the Greens are going to want to pull out anyway. 
And everything that Kate Forbes and Ash Reagan have been saying about the Greens and some of the key policies the Greens support would indicate to me that they don't want the Greens in government anyway. So, and you know, at the end of the day, it might be a pretty easy uh, choice um, in that if Hamza wins, the cooperation agreement stays and things pretty much stay as they are. If Kate or Ash win, the cooperation, cooperation agreement is out the window, the Greens are out of government. And I suppose the question then is, what do the Greens do at that point? You know, um, which is what, which is what, what I was saying to getting to earlier, Andy. I mean, I think I think the Greens have benefited um, relatively a lot more from being mm-hmm. in coalition government than the, the SNP have, and and the kind of polling figures uh, uh, bear that out. Which is why I think they need to give serious thought to whether they want to be in the tent with that credibility that being in government brings, or out with the tent and more of the kind of big green pressure group as they might have been viewed before. Um, either way, whatever happens with this, it's going to tell us a lot about the future direction of the Scottish government. Um, so if if you're right, Andy, in your analysis, and I tend to agree with you, if if Hamza sticks with the cooperation agreement, that itself has inherent risks. Because I believe, and certainly, okay, I'm coming from the northeast of Scotland, the oil and gas capital of Europe, and there's a lot of people around here that speak to me and say, oh, it's those Greens, it's that, it's their, it's their, it's their fault kind of thing. That wouldn't necessarily be repl- replicated across the country. Um, but if Hamza continues as is, there may still need to be some renegotiation of some of, of how these um, different levers are um, allocated to the, to the Green Ministers, because I sense a, a little bit of um, dismay amongst SNP uh, voters and members at that. But you're right, Kate could again, and Ash could again use this as an opportunity, as we said earlier, to do something different. And maybe they would be proactive in saying, no, no, we, we don't want to have the Greens in, in government. Uh, that would be strong as well. Um, perhaps you'd want to seek to renegotiate in the terms of the cooperation agreement and perhaps both mutually agree to part. It's going to be fascinating to, to see how this one unfolds. Do you know one thing as well, that it just it's particularly for listeners of the podcast from outside Scotland, because the obvious thing to think about the Greens being in coalition is what you would think about them being in coalition in any anywhere in the world. And they've been in coalition several times yeah. throughout Europe, but they are not in coalition to bolster green credentials. That's not why they're there. The SNP's green credentials were perfectly good without the Green Party. They didn't need to, the SNP didn't need to green themselves they had very credible green credentials, you know, big in renewable energy, looking at things like DRS, like we talked about earlier. Um, you know, there's, there, was an, there was an awful lot already on the table. They were not seen as having a climate problem, the SNP. That's not why the Greens are there. And I think there's always a misconception, even in England, because the English Greens are quite different to the Scottish Greens, as are the Irish Greens quite different, and Greens throughout Europe are quite different. This is a different sort of Green Party. This is a a Green Party which, yes, has its roots in environmentalism and sustainability, but is very much more focused on social policy, very much more focused on economic policy. As I mentioned in the podcast last week, is openly uh, against economic growth. Um, So this this is not a Green Party like you would necessarily see in different parts of Europe. It's a, it's a different entity, and they're not in government because they're green. They're in government because they offer numbers, because of independence, because of other issues. 
It's really fascinating, actually. All the implications of this are, are really huge. They're really important. And that is why we are here. That is why Jeff is here, why Andy is here, why I'm here, and why we want you to be a part of this. If you've got questions, if you've got analysis that you want to offer, then please do email us anytime. The inbox is always open. The email address is hello at hollywoodsources.com. And by the way, guys, it strikes me that the next time we speak, uh, which will be next week, uh, we will have had, let me just do one, two, three, four, five hustings including the online hustings. Uh, and of course, we will have had actually the first TV debate, which is scheduled for 9 p.m. on Tuesday, March the 7th. So all three candidates will be up against each other in about a week's time. Um, so I suppose we'll be doing a bit of a post-mortem on that and, uh, and what happens thereafter uh, when we speak again. Um, thank you both very much. Great to chat to you this week. Uh, Andy McKeever and Jeff Aberdeen, do give us your thoughts uh, as we build up to that first TV debate as well next week. That'll be quite a crucial moment. A lot of the hustings, if you're an SNP member, you might be involved, but lots of them might pass you by otherwise. They are all over Scotland uh, over the next, what, couple of weeks or so. Uh, but yes, there are going to be several between now and the next time we're back with Hollywood Sources. Thanks for being there. Make sure you follow and subscribe and tell your friends as well. This is important listening. It's an important time for Scotland, and so they should be here too. Uh, thanks for being there. We will speak to you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.